Well, it's good to see you all here this morning. And I've got a comment about that reading. We're doing a series on community life, living as a community of, of followers of God. And we have these two verses here for our reading. And when I looked at the verses, I was a bit puzzled. Because, I mean, I don't know you that well. I mean, I've been here for a couple of years. I haven't been on a PCC meeting, any PCC meetings. But I wouldn't have thought that bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, or malice were major problems in East Molsey. Now, you may correct me, but I haven't noticed it, to be honest. Okay. So, um, with that sort of put to one side, um, I'd like to ask you to just ask that God would speak to us as we think about the Ephesian church and this passage and its broader context. Okay, let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, open our ears that we may hear. Open our eyes that we may see. Open our hearts that we may receive. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like us to step back a bit. Um, I think this passage needs a bit of context, okay? So I'd like you to think about one question. And it's this one. Why did the Apostle Paul write letters to churches? Okay. Paul wrote quite a few letters. Romans, First um, and Second Corinthians, Philippians, Ephesians, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, etc. And if he hadn't written them, we would be much the poorer and we'd have less in the New Testament to read. Okay, so why did Paul write these letters? Just think about that for a minute. I want to put to you that Paul set the pattern for Christian mission. Okay? He would travel from town to town preaching the gospel, the good news about Jesus. All around the Roman world you have Paul's journeys. And his first stop would be the Jewish synagogue. I mean, Paul's motto was first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. First he would go to the Jewish synagogue, if there was one. And he would announce the coming of Israel's long-expected Messiah. Because here were people who should know the prophecies. They should realize how Jesus fit that, that fingerprint. He would announce the coming of Israel's long-awaited Messiah the one who fulfilled the prophecies, the one who was the hope of Israel. And for some Jewish people, they responded. Some would believe. Some would want to hear a bit more before they believed. But typically, others, usually the religious leaders, would get angry and refuse to listen, stir up all types of trouble. And so Paul would leave the synagogue and he'd take his message to the Gentiles, 
Now, for those of you who are a bit unsure what a Gentile is, I think probably most of us here this morning are Gentiles, because a Gentile is anybody who's not Jewish, okay? So it's basically the rest of the world. And he would go to the marketplace, he'd go to the forums, he'd go to the places where people discuss new ideas, and there he would proclaim Jesus. Jesus, who was good news for both Jew and Gentile. Jesus, who is basically good news for the world. And actually, I talked about this a few weeks ago. <clears throat> and as people came to believe, Paul and his traveling companions, his colleagues, would form little communities of new believers. And he would teach them to live as Jesus' followers, as people of the way, which is what Christians were called in those days, people of the way. It was a sort of uh, a slightly disguised way of saying Jesus follower, although it was accurate, I'm the way, the truth, and life. But as people of the way, you could sort of think it's a new religion. Okay. Um, and these little house churches would become missional communities, reaching out to the people around them with the gospel of Jesus. You know, Jesus had said, You are the light of the world. And actually think about that. You sitting here, if you're a Christian, you are the light of the world. I mean, Jesus was the light of the world, and now we are the light of the world. And he said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's our purpose, to shine and help people to see that it's real. When Paul had to move on, he would leave these little groups in the care of trusted leaders. He would choose elders or leaders from the congregation and he would put them in charge. But he would continue to pray for the little, ch the little churches, the little communities, and he would keep in touch through messengers. He would be sending messengers like Timothy back and forth or through letters. He would write to them. And in his letters, he would follow a similar pattern. First, he would remind them of the wonder of the gospel, how amazing it is, and the wonder that now, because of what Jesus has achieved, there is good news for everybody who believes. Jew and Gentile can be accepted as the people of God. I'll read you a passage from his letter to the Ephesians. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one, huge, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Christians are one. There's a oneness about us that sometimes in church history we've forgotten about. But I think one of the good things about Alpha is Alpha reminds us of our oneness, of our common foundation of the fact that actually 
Christians are meant to be one. We're meant not to squabble over petty, different, uh, petty, petty differences. Okay? Lots of silly things have divided the church. But in Alpha, all the different Christian denominations should be able to do it if they believe the gospel. And it reminds us of our oneness. And then, in the second part of his letter, this is like the typical pattern for Paul's letters, Paul would usually answer the questions that people brought up or deal with any problems or issues which he'd heard about. And he would encourage all of them to live as followers of Jesus. Okay? He'd deal with the problems and he'd encourage them to live as followers of Jesus. To live as lights, as beacons of hope in a dark and hostile world, offering love and faith, peace and joy. Quite attractive things if you think about it. In the letter to Philippians, he said, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. You know, the word, the Greek word, and John will be able to bear this out, the Greek word he used for hold on to is actually, or hold firmly to, also can mean to hold out. And so some translations, like the old 1984 NIV, said hold out, because it was more evangelically minded. Um, the newer one, it says hold on, because it's more sort of, let's defend the faith type of thing. But actually it means both. Christians need to to hold on to the word of life and believe it, and then hold it out to others. Okay? It's a, a two, it's a double-edged word. Okay? And often he would need to explain again what it meant to live as followers of Jesus in terms of changed behavior, changed attitudes, changed lifestyle. Because the societies they came from were very often dark societies. Ephesus, for instance, was a very dark place. I'm not sure if you are aware of that from reading Acts, but Ephesus was a site of the temple of, of uh, the goddess Artemis. It was a great temple. It was a huge building. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Ephesus itself was very busy. It was a commercial center. It was very big. It was prosperous. It was the, more or less the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Uh, very proud. And it was also famous as a center for occult practices. So what did Paul do when he went to a place like that? Pretty dark, a bit like London. Um, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them, took the disciples with him, and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. I mean, this is part of more Paul's strategy. He would tend to go to a big city, city with good communications, um, and then 
he would preach the word there and then it would spread out to the surrounding little towns um, and little churches would start. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now this is quite a remarkable sentence because Paul didn't do this elsewhere. It was only in Ephesus. Only in Ephesus did he do these extraordinary miracles with handkerchiefs and aprons, touching him and then taking to people who are ill. And in a way, it raises a question. Why do we never hear of Paul doing that elsewhere? I think Paul was involved in a huge spiritual battle there. And this was part of the part he was playing. Healing people and casting out demons in Jesus' name. And we get a little hint of it in some of his other letters. Uh, to two Corinthians he wrote, the troubles we experienced in, in the province of Asia, that's what he wanted uh, them to understand, that these troubles. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself, which is weird when you have read Acts. And then in 1 Corinthians he says, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? Again, Acts doesn't talk about wild beasts. There's no record of any physical violence against Paul, no beatings, no stonings, no imprisonment. And I think the clue is, if you look at what Paul, look at the whole letter of Ephesians and how he's talking about Christians seated in the heavenly realms and far above all rulers and powers and authorities, it must have been spiritual opposition a battle against darkness and despair, sort of waged in the heavenly realms. That was what Paul was doing. A struggle against demonic forces, which Paul had to fight in his own spirit. And part of his way of waging this war backwards was dealing with these forces and then casting out demons and healing people and dealing with all the stuff that Jesus used to deal with. Jesus cast out a lot of demons and healed a lot of people. So it's not surprising that it was to the Ephesians that Paul wrote his classic passage on spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6, you get this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. He's encouraging these Ephesians, in the middle of the darkness that there was, to stand, stand firm, because it was a major battle. And you know, many of the new believers in Ephesus had previously been involved in the occult as a result of an incident with some Jewish exorcists. We read these words. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed to what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together 
and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now, 50,000 drachmas sounds, well, quite a lot of money. Um, how much do you think it would be in today's money? Well, one drachma was, equal, was the, the, day, the wages of a day laborer. So when people have done the maths, some people reckon it's about five million pounds in today's currency. So if I challenge you, right, bring all those magic scrolls that you've got in, in your cupboards, bring them all here, we'll count them up and we'll burn them. I doubt if we'll come to anything like that amount of money. Yeah? Not really. But this was the sort of problem, the scale of the problem that existed in Ephesus. And against this background, it's hardly surprising that Paul has to explain the behavior that is appropriate within the Christian community. So what did Paul say to the Ephesians? What did he say to this new community, to these people who would be engaging in, wish, in mission, being light in the world? Well, I'm going to read you the sort of full context of the, of the reading that we had. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. And I'd like to challenge each of you, as we read on in this list, to think, are there things in this list that challenge me? Are there things I need to deal with? Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down when you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. I think that's quite a good, a good verse for married couples. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. That is a list to think about, to take back, to read, to study. Uh, it's basically Ephesians 4, 22 to 32. But it was through the ch these changed communities, like the one in Ephesus, these communities engaged in mission, Communities like the house churches in Ephesus, that belief started to spread through the whole Roman Empire. You know, Christianity started off as a tiny group of believers. 
And they were persecuted from the beginning, first by the Jewish authorities, then by the Romans. But it started to spread. The influence spread person to person across the Roman Empire, the biggest empire that they knew of in those days. And people were persuaded, not just by what they heard, but how these Christians lived. I mean, there were periods of intense persecution, and there were many Christian martyrs, and we mustn't forget that. But through it all, the, the message of Jesus continued to spread. And within 350 years, you had a Roman emperor who was a Christian. And Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Within 350 years of Paul writing these words. And it's continued to spread throughout history, throughout the world. Although there have been some ups and downs at different times, as we know about, if you look, know about church history. And I want to mention one example. In the 18th century, Christianity in England was dying. Okay, this has been a Christian country for well over a thousand years, but Christianity was dying. People were tired of all the wars about religion that had been sparked off by the Reformation. All over Europe, people were tired. And there was a movement called the Enlightenment. Thinkers were thinking sort of basically atheistic thoughts. And so deism and um, rationalism had become fashionable among the intelligentsia. And extravagance and self-indulgence was common among the rich people. They couldn't care less about the poor people. And there was widespread poverty and unbelief among the poor who felt neglected. But then came a movement which people have called the Evangelical Revival. The main character was somebody called John Wesley, who was an Anglican. He says, I live and die a member of the Church of England. But obviously there was a split later. Um, and basically it was a rediscovery of Paul's teaching, especially salvation through faith. I mean, there's a passage where they talk about Wesley um, listening to Paul's um, to Luther's exposition of the Gospel of Galatia, of the um, letter to the Galatians, and feeling his heart strangely warmed. It was salvation through faith. And a passage to the Ephesians says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Salvation through faith sparked the evangelical revival. And they were also inspired by Paul's pattern for Christian mission. John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, John Newton, the Clapham sect and others basically sparked off a century and a half of social and missionary activity that transformed England and most of Britain and also the world. I mean, this country in the 19th century was a center for world missions. Look at us now. And by the way, the Clapham sect was not just a bunch of weirdos, but it was a group of very uh, enthusiastic Anglicans at Holy Trinity Clapham who were labeled sort of the Clapham sect. 
but that was just because they were too um, enthusiastic. And by uh, one of the most famous chaps was William Wilberforce. You know, it's that sort of guy who were part of these groups. It was, it's an unfortunate name. Anyway, John Wesley wrote a thing where he talked about the change that happened in the communities he started. He wrote this, The habitual drunkard that was is now temperate in all things. The whoremonger now flees fornication. He that stole steals no more, but works with his hands. He that cursed or swore, perhaps at every sentence, has now learned to serve the Lord. And it's interesting if you think some of those resonate with our passage from Paul. It's a changed life, and it has an impact. People were intrigued by these changed lives. Not just what they said, but how they lived. But that unfortunately has died out. In the 20th century, 21st century, many people are saying that Christianity is dying. The news media tells us Christianity is dying in this country. Atheism's taking over and lots of other religions. But through Christian communities, through changed communities, through communities that are actually engaged in mission, communities like St. Mary's East Malti, there is hope if we live as followers of Jesus, if we shine like stars in the sky, like beacons of hope in a dark and hostile world, offering love and faith, peace and joy, living lives that are pleasing to God, and strangely attractive to people on the outside. And I want you to just pause and think for a moment about this question. Are you a beacon of hope in a dark and hostile world? Is that who you are? Let's pray.